This morning we begin a time in a new book of the Bible. It's not that it's new to our Bibles, but it's new to our study on Sunday morning. Uh, Open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. And uh, we're going to spend a few weeks in the book of Galatians. We're going to begin here at chapter 1, verse 1. You can see what a really exciting and critical book this is for our times. Galatians chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, raise up your hand. One of our ushers will bring one to you. And uh, we're going to start here at chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to read the text that we're going to take a look at this morning. And then we'll go ahead and examine it piece by piece. Galatians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Let me start off with you this morning by just asking a simple question. And if I could, I'd like to see a show of hands in response. Uh, How many of you have been Christians, you've been walking with the Lord for at least 12 years? Let me see your hands. Well, awful lot of you here this morning have been Christians for at least 12 years. Well, let's say that that's the number of years that you've been walking with the Lord. You've been a Christian now for 12 years, and one day you come here to church, and however the Lord does it, the Lord really speaks clearly to you and impresses to you on your heart that you need to go out on the mission field. Let's say that it's through the sermon, or maybe it's through the passage of Scripture that we're going through, or maybe it's somebody speaks. However it is, you're just absolutely convinced, God, you want me out on the mission field. And so there you go. You go with a team of people, and God calls you from city to city, and you're going places where the gospel's never been preached before. And over a period of two or three years, God blesses it so much that you're able to plant churches in at least five different cities all over the place, and you've got strong churches going there. You know, you go to a city, you preach the gospel, you get a church going, and then eventually they kind of kick you out. Maybe there's a riot in town, and you have to move on to the next place. But over a period of years, uh, you've started churches in five different cities, and so finally you make your way back, and here you are back again at Simi Valley, and we're just praising God for what He's done through uh, the mission trip that He sent you on over the past few years. Sound good? Well, that's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. When Paul had been a Christian for 12 years, God stirred among the people at the church where he was at. It was in a city called Antioch. And they sent Paul out with a team of people, including Barnabas and another fellow named John Mark. And they went on what we call Paul's first missionary journey. And as Paul went out on this journey, as he went to go and preach the gospel in these different places, he ended up planting churches in these five or so different cities. And he was very, very successful. So far, so good. 
But when Paul came back to his home church and when he settled down among them, he got some very disturbing news. He heard that the Christians in those churches where he had planted were beginning to move away from the important doctrines that he had taught them. Now, again, I'm not talking about little things. It's not, you know, well, they decided to sing uh, uh, more traditional choruses instead of, uh, uh, you know, old-time ones or this or that. It wasn't little things they were talking about. These were fundamental aspects of the faith, and it was very troubling to Paul. And he said, what am I going to do about it? I've got to do something to, to reach out to these Christians in the churches that I've planted and see if we can't get them going on the right track again because they're quickly going into the wrong place. So Paul sat down and he put pen to paper. Well, actually, he dictated this letter, as we're going to see when we get to it at the very end. Paul got together a scribe and he said, I'm going to say a few things. I want you to write this down and we're going to send this letter off to my friends in the region of Galatia because I want you to notice something about the the letter to the Galatians. It wasn't just written to one church. You can see that there in verse 2. Look at it. It says, to the church is of Galatia. There is no city of Galatia. Galatia is a region. And so there were many churches in the region of Galatia. And Paul's writing a letter that was meant to circulate among the churches in this region. It's as if the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Christians of Ventura County. And the letter was copied and made its way from church to church. And now it's come here to us a couple thousand years later. Here we are in Simi Valley. We're here ready to examine this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. And so he's been a Christian for about 15 years by the time he uh, dictates this letter to the scribe who's writing it for him. How does that make you feel? You've been a Christian for 15 years? You ready to write something like Galatians? Kind of humbles you, doesn't it? I mean, man, I haven't done nothing for the Lord, you think. But look at Paul here after 15 years. And here he is. He's going to start out. So let's take a look at this letter he writes. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle. Not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Do you pick up just a little bit of attitude in that first verse? You should. Paul starts off. Paul, an apostle. By the way, that's how they wrote letters back then. You know, when we write a letter today, we say, dear so-and-so. We start out with who we're sending the letter to. In the ancient world, they started out with who was writing the letter, which makes sense. You shouldn't wait to get all the way to the end of the letter before you know who's writing it to you. And he says, Paul... Then he says, an apostle. Do you know what an apostle is? An apostle is a special ambassador of Jesus Christ. Now, you might ask yourself, are there apostles today? Well, yes and no. There are apostles in the sense that certainly God has special ambassadors in the church today. God has people that he calls not just to lead a church, but to lead a movement. And I can think of people uh, both in the church today and in recent church history that God has called uh, above just leading the Christian work on a congregational level. And he's called them to lead entire movements for his glory. God has his special ambassadors. But then again, the Bible tells us that the church is founded on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And that's not a foundation that needs to be laid again. Maybe we should say that there's apostles with a capital A. That's Paul and those blessed men who gave us the New Testament. And then God has apostles with a small a, a lowercase a. And there's apostles in a lower sense today, but not in the same sense as Paul. But Paul says, I'm an apostle. And notice what he says next here. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You picked up that attitude there, didn't you? 
You know why Paul is a little bit feisty here in the first verse saying, you better believe I'm an apostle and not by popular vote? We didn't have an election and say, well, we need to have an apostle from this church. Who should it be? You get a couple guys to campaign, you know, elect me as the apostle. No! No, Paul says, my calling as an apostle came right from God. It didn't come from man. It didn't even come through man. It's not like God told somebody else that I should be an apostle. It came directly from Jesus Christ himself, from the person of God the Father, from the person of God the Son. It came directly from God, Paul is saying. Now, why does he say that? Because the Galatians weren't respecting Paul's authority as an apostle. I think it's very important that we have a healthy respect for authority especially the authority of the Word of God. This is what matters. Paul's authority as an apostle, the authority entrusted to us written in the New Testament. Friends, Paul speaks to us just as much as he spoke to the Galatians, and it's as if he looks us in the eye and says, I want you to recognize the authority I have from God to speak to you on this, and that's why we kind of pick up that attitude in verse 1. He continues on in verse 2, And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, again, we considered this area of Galatia, by the way, which is in modern-day Turkey. That's the same area in the world today, modern-day Turkey, this region of Galatia that was in the ancient Roman Empire. Now Paul's going to continue on in the letter here, verse 3. And he says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've ever done much reading of the Bible, that phrase sounds familiar to you. Because Paul opens up almost every one of his letters with that greeting. And it isn't just a, you know, automatic, unthinking thing. Paul really means it. He means grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that our Christian life is founded on the grace of God and on having peace with God. So you know what I think is wonderful about this? You'll never, ever find it where Paul says, peace and grace to you. It's always grace and peace. For Paul, grace always comes before peace. You always receive the grace of God before you have peace with God. You want to be at peace with God? Then receive His grace, receive His favor, receive His love. You'll never be at peace with God until you do that. It's grace that always comes first. And then he continues on here in verse 4. And I think this is something very interesting. Because Paul mentioned Jesus at the end of verse 3. Now that Jesus is on his mind, he wants to say what Jesus has done for us. Look at verse 4 who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What did Jesus do for us that Paul describes in verse 4? He gave himself for our sins. The first thing that Paul says about Jesus is that Jesus gave himself for our sins. And this blows my mind because Paul can't get two sentences in his letter without talking about Jesus and what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's what it all comes back to. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's what's important, that Jesus gave himself for us. And did you notice how Paul phrases that in verse 4? It's outstanding. He says, who gave. Now, How many of you know John 3.16, right? Maybe the first memory verse a lot of Christians learn. It's that thing that you see, well, I guess it's football season again. It's John 3.16 season in all the stadiums all across the country. What's it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, who's the he that gave in John 3.16? Well, it's God the Father. 
We know that God the Father gave God the Son. Well, who's the one doing the giving here in verse 4 of Galatians chapter 1? It's Jesus himself. So who gave? Did the Father give or did Jesus give? They both gave. They both gave. Well, here's an interesting question. Who, who gave more? You know, you look at it from the Father's perspective, and you say, man, to give up your son, that's hard. That's giving more. It'd be easier to go yourself. It'd be harder to give up your son. The Father must have given more. And then you look at it from Jesus' perspective, and say, well, who, Jesus, who gave more there? I mean, to go yourself, that's always harder. I mean, who gave? And I say, well, who cares? I mean, it's, you can't answer that question, can you? May as well start talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Who gave more, the Father and the Son? The Father gave all He could give, and the Son gave all He could give. But that's where our salvation begins, with the giving of God. Jesus is a loving, giving God, and a loving, giving Savior. And what did He give? He gave Himself. Friends, there's a sense in which we do not even begin to give until we give ourselves. And that's what Jesus gave. He didn't give a committee. He didn't give advice. He didn't give an angel. He gave himself. And why? Look at it there in verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins. Now the idea there in the original wording of the language that Paul wrote in is that he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. This is why Jesus had to give himself. Our sins had put us on a road to ruin and destruction. If God didn't do something to save us, our sins would have destroyed us. So out of love, Jesus gave himself for our sins. Friends, I want you to consider that just for a moment. Jesus Christ gave himself for your sins as a sacrifice, as an atonement for your sins. There is not a single person in this room who needs to be burdened by the stain or the guilt or the penalty of your sin. Jesus Christ gave himself for your sin. You know what that means? Sin does not need to disqualify a single person from the kingdom of God. It doesn't. Satan ever beat you over the head with that one? You're such a sinner. You don't belong before God. I don't know if Satan uses the word sinner when he talks to you. That's kind of an old-fashioned word, isn't it? But it's so good. It describes our state so completely, doesn't it? You're such a failure. You're such a loser before God. He doesn't want to have anything to do with you. That's what the devil whispers into your ear. I tell you, it can feel oppressive. It can feel dark. It can feel like something terrible coming over you. You know, I was reading in a wonderful commentary by Martin Luther on the book of Galatians. You know, Martin Luther loved the book of Galatians. He, he called the book of Galatians his wife because he said, I was married to this. That's how much he loved this book. And Luther, I'm going to paraphrase a, a comment from his book here. He says, We should equip ourselves against the accusations of Satan with this and with other similar passages of Scripture. If Satan says to you, you're going to hell, you're going to be damned, then you tell him this. Say, no, because I'm going to Jesus who gave himself for my sins. And then he says, go on and tell the devil this. Hey, Satan, when you accuse me of being a terrible sinner, you're cutting your own throat, Satan. You're reminding me of God's loving goodness towards me and that he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Hey, Satan, when you call me a sinner, you're really comforting me because that's who Jesus Christ came to save, sinners. 
And he says, with that kind of heavenly strategy, you're going to meet the devil's work and put away from you the memory of sin. Friends, you really can walk out of here this morning with a clear conscience before God. Not because you've been good enough to deserve it, but because Jesus Christ was good enough to give himself for our sins. Now why? Look at it again here. Something else he wanted to do. Verse 4. That he might deliver us from this present evil age. In other words, Paul says, you know what? Not only does Jesus want to forgive us our sins, but he wants to deliver us from this present evil age. Now, we live in a present evil age, don't we? And this is where it gets a little bit testy. Because in the next few verses, Paul is going to declare some ideas that really run contrary to the thinking of this present evil age. You know, our culture, our society, our our world has a way that they think, doesn't it? And what Paul is going to share in the next few verses, I guess I'm a little nervous sharing this, not because I'm ashamed of it, not because I don't believe it, but because I realize that, that each and every one of us live under the influence of this present evil age. And I'll be honest with you, what Paul shares in the next few verses, some of you here this morning might find it just plain old offensive. Because it runs contrary to the thinking of our present evil age. So let's look at it here. What does he say in verse 6? I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Paul says, I'm blown away. I just started you as a church a couple years ago. And now I come back and I find that you're turning away already. It's not just that you're turning away, but so soon. I thought you would have run fine for a few years at least, but already you're beginning to get off course. And if you continue along this way, it's going to be ruin for you. Notice this too. Paul says that they're turning away from what? Well, first of all, they're turning away from him. Who's the him that they're turning away from? Jesus Christ. Friends, this wasn't just a, well, you know, it's just some theological debate in the churches of Corinth, you know, or excuse me, the churches of Galatia. There they are. They just want to debate theology. No, we're not talking about a, a vain, speculative theological debate. We're not talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or did Adam have a belly button. Now that's one for you to think about. But we're not talking about that at all. We're talking about something that is so important that if you get this wrong, you're turning away from Jesus himself. Not only are they turning away from that, but notice it, they're turning to something. Did you notice that at the end of verse 6? They're turning to a different gospel. Away from Jesus to a different gospel. There's two things I need to say about verse 6. First of all, I need to mention here that one of the most interesting things about the Bible sometimes is to notice not only what's there, but what's not there. And there's something not there in verse 6 that's very important for us to consider. By contrast, keep your finger here in Galatians. I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go left in your Bible a couple books. You know, the previous book to Galatians is 2 Corinthians, then comes 1 Corinthians. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's page 1113 in my Bible, but that doesn't help you at all, really. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, let me give you a clue here. The church at Corinth was really messed up. And Paul has to really correct a lot of things at the church at Corinth. 
But look at how he begins his letter. Start at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now look at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, that you come short in no gift, eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to notice. In the rest of the letter to the Corinthians, Paul is going to have a lot of things he needs to correct. But he begins by thanking God for them. He begins by patting them on the back. Now go back to Galatians chapter 1. What's not in verse 6? Any kind of thanksgiving to God, any pat on the back, this shows how passionate and how concerned Paul is about the problems going on in the Galatian church. It's as if Paul comes and he knocks on the door. Who is it? It's Paul the Apostle. Can I come in? Yeah, come on in. Paul comes in and forget about the niceties. Forget about, you know, can I have a cup of coffee? Forget about how you're doing. Paul sits down and he looks at you across the table and he says, we've got to talk. There's real problems going on here. We need to get right to it. What is he talking about? He's talking about the danger that they've turned away from Jesus and they've turned to a different gospel. Now, this is where we really run into some trouble. We run into some trouble because Paul is talking about a different gospel. And in our culture, in our thinking, different isn't bad. Different is always to be celebrated. You know, we live in the time of political correctness and multiculturalism and pluralism. And you know what? There's a lot good about all that. Shouldn't we live with love and and kindness and tolerance towards one another? Isn't it wrong for somebody to be ill-treated or to be discriminated against because of their race or their ethnic background or their economic class? Well, all of that stuff is good, and we should all show a lot of love and tolerance and acceptance towards one another. But we live in this present evil age that is so impressed with the principles of everything that that is different is good... That when a different gospel comes along, we have trouble putting our finger on it and saying, that's bad. When Paul says at the end of verse 6, a different gospel, he doesn't say, and let's celebrate our differences. (laughs) Not at all. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Friends, this other gospel wasn't a real gospel at all. It was a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a distortion. It was something, uh, a mutation of the real, a mutation of the true. And Paul says they're here and they want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're really just bringing you trouble. They're here to trouble you. It's not good news, which, by the way, that's what the word gospel means, good news. Paul says, this isn't good news. It's bad news. It's different, but it's not good. He means this so passionately. He says something there in verse 7. It's just one word, but if you missed it, I tell you, when I saw this, it really made me think, made me scratch my head to tell you the truth. Look at verse 7. He says, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. You mean they want to? Who wakes up in the morning and says, you know what? I want to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
I've never met a single person who thought they wanted to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you start thinking, why would anybody want to? Why? I think to understand the answer to that question, we need to understand what the gospel is. Do you know what the gospel is? For some people, the gospel is, okay, you want to be saved? You got to clean up your act. Start going to church. You know, do the best you can. You know, don't drink, don't chew, don't, you know, run with the bad crowd. And then, you know, the good Lord in heaven will see you through to the sweet by and by. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know what the gospel is? You want to understand why someone would want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ? Then let's take a look at it here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, turn back to the book of 1 Corinthians. In the first four verses of that chapter, Paul gives such a clear explanation of the gospel. And I'm here to propose to you this morning... That in the message of the true gospel, there's something deeply offensive to human nature. I'm going to say that again. In the message of the true gospel, there is something deeply offensive to human nature. Say, wow, well, let's find out what the true gospel is. Let's find out what it is that offends human nature. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That Jesus Christ died was buried and rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now some of you are thinking, yeah, and what else? No, that's it. Do you notice that? That's a message that's all about what Jesus has done for us, not about what we have to do for Him. The message of the gospel is the message is about what Jesus did to rescue you, not what you have to do to rescue yourself. We believe in that and we trust in that. And some of you are saying, okay, I understand that, but I'm not following you. What possibly in that is offensive to human nature? I'll tell you what's offensive about it. First of all, the message of the true gospel offends our pride. It offends our pride right at the beginning because it looks at us square in the eye and it says, you need to be rescued. What do you mean I need to be rescued? I'm fine. I don't need to be saved. I'm doing great. No, you need to be rescued. That offends our pride. Next thing it does to offend our pride is it looks us square in the eye again and it says, you can't rescue yourself. What do you mean I can't rescue myself? Well, I can be good enough. I'm a good person. Look, I'm better than most of the people around me. Etc., etc. No, there's nothing you can do to rescue yourself. Thirdly, when you are rescued, the true gospel offends your pride because you know what? It doesn't give you any credit for it. Oh, how many people want that Frank Sinatra salvation? The salvation that says, I did it my way. Yes, yes, I'm saved. I achieved it. I ac- no, no. No, the, the, the way of salvation is to God be the glory, great things He has done. 
You know, those things offend our pride. You want to be rescued? First of all, you need to be rescued. First of all, secondly, you, you, you can't do anything to rescue yourself. And thirdly, when you are rescued, it's no credit to you whatsoever. That's an offense to human pride, isn't it? The true gospel of Jesus Christ also offends our wisdom. Now, if you were going to engineer the salvation of the world, would you do it like God did it? Send your son, adding humanity to his deity, having him walk this earth as a humble man, not a king, not a ruler, but as a humble man, and then by dying a painful, humiliating death on the cross, publicly expose yourself to horrible shame, and through that you're going to accomplish the salvation of the world. I don't think you would have planned it that way. I know I wouldn't. That offends human wisdom. I think it also offends human knowledge. You know, it tells us to believe something that goes against scientific knowledge and personal experience, that a dead man, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. Now do you see why some people, maybe every one of us, if we don't watch ourselves, there's something in us that wants to to pervert the gospel. Because we want to make it not offensive to our human nature. Friends, back to Galatians chapter 1. Paul says that this different gospel is not another, but there's some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But then he brings it out here in verse 8. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you've received, let him be accursed. Friends, does that sound like strong language? Good, because Paul meant it that way. The Holy Spirit meant it that way. We almost feel like, man, Paul, lighten up a little bit. Why don't you just say that they're wrong? Paul says, no, they're not only wrong, I want it to stop. Paul doesn't even care who brings the false gospel. He says, if I start bringing a different gospel, Paul says, if I came to you next month and if I started preaching something different, he said, I hope you run me out of town. I hope you wouldn't let me come and speak at your church anymore. That's what Paul says. He says, even if an angel came down from heaven and descended upon this platform, if that angel had a message that was different from the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you disregard him. Even if that angel's name is Moroni, you don't even listen to him. Friends, it's a very heavy thing that Paul says. He repeats it twice to strengthen it. Doesn't this really challenge this present evil age? Again, we live in a time where political correctness or multiculturalism really looks down on anyone saying, my religious faith is right and yours is wrong. We don't like to say that. We don't like to hear it. Most people believe that there's a lot of different roads to God. It doesn't really matter which road you take. They're all pretty much the same in the minds of most people. What do Christians believe about that? Let me say this, and this is a very important point that should not be missed. We as Christians believe that we should allow and tolerate different religious views. Friends, this is very important. We are not interested in having the government enforce our religious views. 
What we want is the government just to let us preach the gospel and to let other people preach their religions. That's fine. We believe that the truth will win the day. Just let us preach the gospel. We don't need any special favors from the government. We don't want the government to prosecute heretics. You know, you may be sitting here this morning, and even though you're looking at me and trying to have a smile or a pleasant look on your face, you may be seething inside right now. You may be having great self-control to keep from rushing down this aisle and shaking me by my shoulders. Because you may think, you know what, preacher, you got no reason, you've got no right to go and send other people to hell. Who are you to say that if people don't follow your own narrow-minded, bigoted way, that they're going to go to hell? Who are you to send people to hell? Friends, I am so happy that I don't have the responsibility for sending a certain single person to hell. I, I want nothing to do with that. And maybe it's true. Maybe it's true that there are a lot of different ways to God. If it is true, then Jesus Christ is not one of them. Because Jesus said he was the only way. And that's what we're faced with. You know, if there are a lot of different ways to God, and every one of them is fine, everyone's good, hey, they're all roads just going to the same destination, then Jesus cannot be one of them. Because he looked at all the other saviors of the world, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Friends, even if I think you're wrong, I'll support your right to say what you believe. We don't burn heretics at the stake anymore. It was a a mistake, I should say, for Christians ever, ever to do anything like that. Friends, we do believe that any other gospel is wrong. It's not wrong because it goes against what I believe. Who cares what I believe? But it's wrong because it goes against the Bible. And we don't say this because we're narrow-minded bigots who love sending people to hell. We say this because we honor what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Think of it now. Night before Jesus was betrayed, it is there in the Garden of Gethsemane, kneeling down, praying to his Father in heaven. It's a dark night, but at the same time, the moon is full, and so it's shining down, and you can make out the figure of Jesus praying across the garden. And as he prays, he's so intense that even though there's a coolness to that spring night, his body is hot and fevered, and there's sweat pouring off of his brow as if he has a bloody wound that's open. And as Jesus agonizes in prayer in the garden, he calls out to his Father in heaven, and he says, Father, if there is any other way to accomplish the salvation of man, then don't let me go to the cross tomorrow. There was no other way. So Jesus went to the cross. If there's a lot of different ways to God, if different is fine, if there's no dangerous gospel to say that's wrong, then friends, the death of Jesus Christ was a terrible, unnecessary thing. There was no reason for him to die. You could be saved by following anyways. Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. So look at our Lord on the cross who gave himself for our sins. 
And if you can look at that and say, that was foolish and unnecessary, then you can say that you can be saved by another gospel. Now, it might be fair to ask as we conclude this, where's Paul's love? Come on, Paul. Maybe you should dig up 1 Corinthians 13 and read what you wrote. Here you are cursing people left and right here. Where's your love, Paul? Paul's love is for people that are in danger of perishing for eternity. Friends, if a gospel is false, it's not just wrong, but it can't save you. It can't save you. You can't do the job. Paul's heart is to see people redeemed and won back to God. Picture in your mind an ocean liner out on the open seas, and then for some reason it begins to sink. And there's not enough lifeboats, and there's mass confusion. People are jumping into the water, and some of them are in lifeboats, but most of them are out just floating with life jackets. And it's only a matter of time until the chill of the water and the terrible nature of the surroundings is going to kill everybody. And so there they are, and they desperately need a rescue ship to come along and pick them up. And the radio signal has gone out, but they don't know if the rescue ship's going to get there in time. But finally, down on the horizon, you can see that, well, there's two rescue ships coming. Isn't it wonderful? There's two ships, not just one. And so the two ships come, and they start loading people, plucking them up out of the water, bringing them onto the rescue ships. And isn't it wonderful? It's just marvelous. Two ships, get as many people. It doesn't matter which ship you're on. Just get people out of the water and onto the ship. But let's say you knew, and I don't know, it doesn't matter how you knew, it's just a hypothetical example, but let's just say you knew that one of those ships was loaded with a cargo full of dynamite and the entire ship was going to explode and not a single person on one of those rescue ships was going to make it to the home port. They were all going to die in the explosion. Let's say you knew that. Now, how are you going to feel about seeing people get on both rescue ships? You're going to say, no, no, not that one. Don't get on that rescue ship. Oh, it might look fine for right now, and you might be happy to be out of the water, but you're never going to get to your destination. You're going to perish. And people would laugh at you. They'd mock at you. Well, one rescue ship's as good as another. Just get people out of the water. No, no. It matters whether or not that rescue ship is going to be effective, whether or not it'll really rescue you. Friends, isn't that the tragedy? When people trust in a different gospel, one other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ, They're on the wrong rescue ship, and it'll never reach the destination. So, my friends, as we continue on in this book of Galatians, we're going to learn more about what this true gospel is all about. We've got a very real challenge for our hearts here this morning. First of all, do we really understand that he gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age? But secondly, friends, this is very important. Do we have the courage to stand up and in love, not in obnoxiousness, but in love, to say the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and I really think you should change your view to come over this. It means we've got to combat the spirit of this present evil age, doesn't it? But if it's true, it's worth it. Let's pray that God gives us strength and the wisdom to do it.